0: Going to be, I wanted to preach here live for a couple of reasons. One, because we're starting a new series. And this new series is called Greater. And it's based off the book of Colossians. If you have a Bible and brought one with you, or if you got on a smart device, you'd go to the book of Colossians. Um uh, it, go if you got if you actually have an old school Bible on paper, <laughs> go to the middle of it, take a right. If you get to the map, you've gone too far. All right. So this is. It, 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 all, 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 the, all, the, all the notes we'll look at, it's on the screen, it's on our app as well. So take advantage of those things. Colossians is the most Christocentric book in the Bible. Christocentric means Christ-centered. Now, all the Bibles about Jesus. But Colossians is the most focused about It's all about Christ. And, and, and we see that a little bit in Colossians 1, verse 15 through 18. The Bible says this, the Son, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, The firstborn of all creation. For in him all things were created. Things in heaven, things on earth, the visible, the invisible. Whatever we're talking about. Thrones, powers, rulers, authorities. All of it. Be created through him and for him. He's before all things and in him all things hold together. He's the head. The head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from among the dead, so that everything, he might have the what? Okay, let's do this. Let's pretend like, when I ask a question that's not rhetorical, and let's pretend like I want to hear from you. That he might have the what? The supremacy. Like it's all about him. It's the most Christocentric book in the Bible, and it's all about Christ. This little book of Colossians was written to the people in a place called Colossae. Makes sense. Here's what I love about Colossae. It was a little small country town. It was overshadowed by its big city neighbors. Sounds like this. Sounds like the ranchos. And it was prone to the pettiness of a small community. That sounds like our lives. And and this little town faced these societal and cultural pressures to compromise their faith and their witness. And so it's a perfect book for us to study. And Paul will call these people saints. Now imagine if someone called you a saint. How would they? Yeah, I don't know if you're anything like me. You're like, ah, you might be talking to the guy behind me because a saint? But here's what he's saying, and this is what we have to understand. He calls them saints because what he was talking about was their title of their status in Christ. He wasn't talking about a holiness that they had attained. If you talk about a holiness that we've attained, I don't think any of us would qualify as as a saint. But if you talk about who I am in Christ because of who he is, then, okay, I'm part of... Colossians is four chapters long. Uh, and it's broken up in, in in halves. Chapters 1 and 2 and chapters 3 and 4. And chapters 1 and 2 is all about what God has done and who Christ is and the fact that he is greater than all others. And chapters 3 and 4 is a response because of who God is and because that Christ is greater, then Christians are obligated to respond. So that's the two halves of this book. There were two major problems with the believers in Colossians. Let me just, let me give you a little background before I jump into this stuff. The background of what was going on with these people, they were suffering from two critical errors. And let's just see if any of these still apply to us. One of the errors is that they were turning from their faith in Christ alone to religious legalistic practices in their world of circumcision, diet, and religious observances. So what they were doing was moving from faith to religion. See, so anybody tried to be religious? We tried to be good, make God happy. That's religion. That's what they were doing. The other thing that they were suffering from was this thing called asceticism. And asceticism is this idea that the body and the physical and the pleasures of this world are bad and they shouldn't be really enjoyed, and you subdue your body by treating it harshly and by your rejection (laughs) of all the fun stuff. (laughs) And and, and so what they were doing was saying, okay, if I can can obey all the rules and be a little bit miserable, (laughs) maybe I can be right with God. It's interesting. Christianity, think about this. This is why religion's got it so screwed up. Christianity is the only major faith religion that teaches the value and the beauty and the blessing of the physical, of the physical world world and and, and the pleasures that God has created. And I'll prove it to you. Christianity is the only major religion where God took on flesh. And if this physical world and flesh were so evil, he wouldn't have taken on flesh. Not only that, but we go back to, back to the creation account in Genesis and over every physical thing that God created, he pronounced it good. And that word good in Hebrew is beautiful. And so God says, look, being right with me is not about beating up your body and denial of all things. Being right with me is about accepting my son and then enjoying everything I've given you. Both those ideas... That plague them still plagues us today. And it plagues us when we talk about this idea of religion. And so many people have tried religion and it's left them dry. Because at the end of the day, religion says, just deny yourself, don't screw up, and maybe. And every one of us who have been religious in the past have realized that I can't be good enough all the time. I at least hope I'm better than my friend Chuck, because if I'm better than Chuck, then maybe I got a shot. Right? And it it, it just is this constant denial. And it just wears us out. Because we're missing Christ. Because as we learned already from Colossians, he's the head of all things. It's it's about him. And so the book of Colossians is really important. So here's what's at stake. Here's what's at stake. In the book of Colossians and in our lives, what's at stake is the centrality of Christ. How central and core is Jesus going to be in our life? So here's the question, okay? So here's what we're going to talk about. Here's the question. Is Jesus prominent or is he preeminent? Vastly different. Now, if you know what prominent means and preeminent, understand, but if you don't, let me help you understand. The question is, is Jesus prominent or is he preeminent? Prominent means important. Preeminent means surpasses all others. This is the question. And this is what Colossians is all about. Is he greater than all other things? Or is he important? Vastly and profoundly different. For many, now probably none of us in this room, but maybe those who are listening, Jesus and the kingdom of God are important. They're prominent. But for many, Jesus and the King of God are not preeminent. Surpasses all others. Not greater than all others. Here's the proof. And here's how we start fleshing this out and understanding what it means for us. Those who call ourselves Christians, you know if Jesus is prominent or preeminent and stuff like this. I I act real Christ-like until someone says something against my kids. Right? That means he's... He's prominent, but he's probably not preeminent. He's important. But maybe not as important as you saying something about my children. Right? We we know. We start saying, okay, well, maybe he's just one of the important things in my life. When someone posts something on social media that disagrees with my values. Boy, then, maybe not so Christ-like. Maybe I'm real Christ-like as long as my political stance isn't threatened. Maybe I'm real Christ-like as long as my freedoms aren't infringed upon. You understand how this works out? You tracking with me? You okay? Can I keep going? Y'all right? Okay, that's my check because some of you're like, I didn't come here for this. Like, give me the video guy back. I like that guy better. <laughs> and, and, so, and so, like, we start realizing, like, is Jesus important or does he surpass all other things? Is he prominent or preeminent? And for most people, he's important, but he's one of the important things in our lives rather than preeminent. And so we've got to decide, is Jesus going to be prominent in my life or is Jesus going to be preeminent? And friends, that's what the book of Colossians is all about. And it's a profound, deeply personal question. And so let's get into this. That was all the introduction. (laughs) Can I start preaching? If Jesus is going to be preeminent, what changes need to be made in my life? I would say for most people, he's important. I mean, after all, we're Americans, right? He's an important part of our life. Church is, religion, whatever you want to say. He's important. But if he's going to be preeminent, that's a different question. So, verse six. In the same way, I'm not going to go through the whole book. I'm just going to take out a couple of verses here, and we'll work our way through. In the same way, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world, just as it had been doing among you since the day you heard it and truly understood God's grace. Now, just the, it, the gospel spread through the whole world. Just a little side note here. Way back in the book of Acts, chapter one, verse eight. Jesus says, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the what? The ends of the earth. And now in, in Colossians 1 6, he says, it has spread through the whole world. Just as you said it would in Acts 1 8. But you know what propelled it from Acts 1 8 to, to Colossians 1 6? A thing happened called persecution. Jesus said, you'll be my witness to the whole earth in Acts 1.8. In Acts 8.1, Stephen, the first martyr of the Christian church, was killed. And from that point on, the Bible says the gospel spread through the whole world. Before then, they were scared spitless. And once the first one laid down his life, then it exploded. When I was looking over this, I thought, you know, Carl, if that's how the church, if that's how it went down, what happens when you feel like you're being persecuted? Is that good for the witness of the, uh, of the church? Is that bad? It's kind of convicting. But, but so the church spread. But do you remember in, in Colossians 1, 6, why it spread? It, it spread. The Bible says this. Because they truly understood the grace of God. That's what made the gospel so beautiful, was understanding the grace of God. That's what Colossians 1.6 says. See, here's the thing. Now watch this. It's, it's the grace of God that makes the message of the truth of the gospel so compelling. Because here's the truth of the gospel, that I'm a sinner and my sin has separated me from God. But the grace of God makes that truth compelling. Why? Because of what grace is. See, grace is all about, it's it's, it's all that God has given to you based on the merits, not of you. Based on the merits of Christ. It's all that God has given you based on the merits of Christ. That's how beautiful grace is. So I can be a screw up and I can admit I'm a sinner, but I'm blessed because of the merits of Christ, not of me. That's grace. And because that is the heart of the gospel, that's why the gospel spreads. See, here's why the gospel doesn't spread. Because we focus so much on the judgment of God rather than the grace of God. It's the grace of God that makes it beautiful. And in Colossians, Paul actually starts this whole letter talking about grace. This is when he says to God's holy people, this is verse 2, this is right up front to God's holy people in Christ the faithful brothers and sisters grace and peace to you from God our father every letter paul wrote it started and ended with grace the first couple verses and the very last verse all had to do with grace because paul understood this grace it's a greek word called charis and and i tattooed it right here cuz i got to be reminded of this all the time it's this word charis and it means this blessedness, this blessing that's enjoyed by one who's favored by a superior. So, as the inferior one, the superior one, God favors me. And because He favors me, He blesses me. That's grace. See, grace is God's favor apart from man's deserving. And Paul prays that we experience this grace of God because that's what, makes this, that's what makes this gospel so compelling. So here's the deal. If you're a receiver of grace, you've got to at the same time be a dispenser of it. This is what it means to follow Jesus. If we received it, we've got to give it, especially when it's difficult because that's what makes grace so beautiful, Right? right? I feel like you're tracking with me. I feel like it's, I feel like I'm preaching pretty good. Are you listening good? See, in the Old Testament, you receive God's favor by your behavior. In the New Testament, after Christ, you receive God's blessing because of his grace. And it's Beautiful. But let me tell you this, one reason we, don't, one reason we resist admitting our guilt is because we don't trust grace. Every one of us, we think God can't be that gracious. I keep doing, I keep doing, I keep screwing up, because we don't trust grace. But the, you know what the other reason why we, why we resist admitting our own guilt? It's real simple, because religious people don't give grace. Like religious people don't. Now I'm not talking about Christ followers. I'm talking about religious people. And so many churches are religious rather than Christ following. And because they don't give grace, we don't want to admit our guilt. Well, I mean, why would we? Right? That's why it's so important. I'm sorry, Paul started every letter and ended every letter with this idea of grace. So watch this. Verses 10, 11, 12. So that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way. This is, this is his prayer. That we bear fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that we may have great endurance and patience. Boy, this is a way to live. And giving joyful thanks to the Father who, who, who what? That's an important word right here. Who what? Qualified. Say it where their mouth is open. Qualified qualified you to share in the inheritance of the holy people, the kingdom of light. Now, I want to stick on this word qualified for a minute because we got to understand this. Paul's prayer is that we bear fruit, that we grow in knowledge, that we're strengthened, and with patient endurance give thanks. What? Because God has done what? Because God has qualified us. This word qualified is super, super, super important. Say super. super. It's super important. Nobody on this side of the room said it. Everybody on this side of the room say it. Say super. super. Excellent. It's super important. Because what that means is that he made us sufficient and he equipped us with adequate power to perform all the duties he's asked us to do. Here's why this is important. Because God's commandments are God's enablements. We think, God, you've asked so much of me, I can't do it all. He says, because I've asked it of you, you can do it. If you quit trying to do it of your own power, you just rest in me. I have already qualified you and equipped you to do everything I've asked of you. It's not laborious. It's not hard. To qualify us means that he's equipped us with the power to do everything he's asked of me. And so what that means to me is I will do all God asks of me, trusting that I'm able to do it as I do it. It becomes able to do God's enable, God's commandments are God's enablements. Once he's asked to do something, he gives us the power to do it. See, here's the truth. We don't receive the power to do what God's asked us to do before we actually do it. Did you catch that? We don't have the power to do that which God asked us to do before we do it. The doing of it unleashes the ability to do it. You understand? It's like if I had... I don't know, a big weight up here. 500 pounds. And if someone asked me to take that and lift it up over my head, I would say, well, let me spend some time in the gym. Let me take my vitamins and do everything i got to do so that I can build up to that. That's different than than God's economy. God says, because I've asked you to do it, I've already given you the ability to do it, but you don't know you have the ability to do it until you do it. So go ahead and do it. And in my weakened state of my humanity, I do that which God has asked me to do, and all of a sudden I find out that I'm able to do it. Because he is greater. And he who is in me is greater than he who is in the world. That's what the Bible says. And the reason God does it like this is because now we have to live by faith. So I ask myself, or, or, or I say, I will do all that God asked me to do. Trusting that he's already enabled me to do it. And so the question that we're left with is this. What has God asked of me that I'm not yet doing or becoming? Chances are, if you have any type of relationship with God, there's something that he has pressed upon your heart that this is your next right spiritual step. Something. For some of you, it just might be believing in Jesus and this whole message of the cross. What is it that He's asked you that you're not yet doing or becoming? Whatever that is, just do it. And you'll realize you have everything in you that needed to do it. Because He's already qualified you for it. Does that make sense? You understand? Let me press on with this. I just got a little bit more because this, this book is incredible. This is, and this is, now I get excited about this stuff. Now watch this. Colossians 1, 21 through to the first part of 23. Once you were alienated, separated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. Would you say that's true about the person you're sitting next to? <laughs> no laughs. That's kind of funny. No laughs at all. Okay. Okay, then, then you, because the Bible says, like once you were separated from him because your minds are messed up and you just weren't doing stuff right. But now he's reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from what? Free from accusation. We're gonna, this is huge now. Free from accusation. If you continue your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. Now, this is profound. Christ followers have a relationship with Christ by faith are free from accusation. Now, this is talking about the spiritual realm. Free from accusation. That doesn't mean from free from being accused. It means free from the penalty of the accusation. Now, here's, here's the way this happens. The devil has two desires, and they're real simple. One of his desires is to turn us away from God by either enticing us with pleasure or inciting us with pain. That's one of his desires, to turn the Christ away from God by enticing us with pleasure or by inciting us with pain. If God was so good, why would he? That's one of his desires. The other desire the devil has is to turn God away from us by accusing us before God to make God reject us. Those are the the only two purposes of the evil one. So Paul's talking about right here, the devil's desire to turn God's heart away from us by accusing us. Now, I won't speak about you all, just speak about me. I've given the devil a lot of ammunition to accuse me before God. Now, you probably haven't. Probably a lot better lives than I've lived. But I've given, God, I've given the devil a lot of ammo. He got a lot of cards he could play and accusations against me. But in reading the Bible, I came across this, this account, and it is profound. Way back in the Old Testament, the book of Zechariah. If, if you've not read Zechariah, it's, it's a weird... It's one of my favorite passages. Look at this. He showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord. And Satan, standing at Joshua's right side to do what? To accuse him. To make God's heart turn away from Joshua. The Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebukes you. So the devil's talking all kinds of smack. And the Bible says, rebuke you. Is not this man a burning sni- stick snatched from the fire? Yeah, he's pretty messed up and not very strong, but I snatched him out the fire. Now the Bible says Joshua was dressed in the in this spiritual in the spiritual realm here before God. Joshua was dressed in filthy clothes and stood before the angel. That word filthy means his own human refuse. So he's covered in his own stuff. You follow me? Is this clear enough so far? The angel said to those who were standing before him, take off his filthy clothes. Then he said to Joshua, see, I've taken away your sin, and I'll put fine garments on you. Then he said, put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him while the angel of the Lord stood by. I want you to understand what's happening here. Joshua, the high priest, the one who's the most holy person of the nation of Israel, is accused in the spiritual world, is accused before God of all of his own filth. And he's presenting all these filthy clothes, his own refuse cousin. He's so nasty, indicating that he had real guilt in him and on him. And the devil's standing there and saying, look, God, he is so messed up. He's so screwed up. He's so nasty and stinky. You cannot accept him. He's filthy. Did you notice? that according to the Bible, God never disputes anything the devil said. Apparently, what the devil was saying was true. He was filthy. Here's what I know. The devil have to lie to me about God to make me not want him but the devil hasn't had to make any lies about me to God. He's got enough truth. And apparently God never disagrees with the devil about how nasty the high priest is. And apparently all the accusations are true. And God simply says, I know. I know exactly who he is. And I've snatched him. And I've cleaned him. And he and I are good. That's incredible to me. Like God never turned away from Joshua as bad as Joshua was. Religionals say, no, no, if you're that bad, you gotta make something up to God. And, and, and Christianity says, no, 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 no. It's not about you. It's about Christ. And you can be dirty and come to Him. And He cleans you up. Cleans me up. And here's what's happening right now. If you've got a relationship with Jesus, here's what's happening right now. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, now come the salvation and power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah. For the what? Mm. This is about the devil. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters, who does what? Accuses them before God. How often? Day, Day and night. has been hold down. One day he'll be, right now he's still before God day and night accusing me and you. Not of lies, apparently. All the devil has to do is tell the truth about me. But here's what, even, here, here's what we gotta get now. Even if those accusations are true, it doesn't matter. This is this is what I love about Christianity. This is what I love about my God. This is what I love about my Jesus. Even if those accusations are true, cause they are, it doesn't matter. Why? Cause I said it earlier. One reason we resist admitting our guilt is because we don't trust grace. It doesn't matter if those accusations are true. Because, therefore now, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Do you understand? Go ahead, devil. Tell God, don't tell everybody else, but tell God Because my condemnation for all the truthful accusation has been absorbed by Jesus on the cross. And so God doesn't hold that sin against us anymore. And when it says we're free, there's no condemnation. This is what it means. It means that when I sin, God doesn't purposely punish me because of that sin. He's already taken care of that by Christ. It means that God doesn't hold the grudge and go, no, I told you. Just because of that, I'm going to make this happen. That's religion. And that's what so many people in church believe, right? I messed up on Friday and now Saturday went bad. That's not how God works. Now, there are natural consequences to our sin. That's, there's no doubt about that. But it's not that God punishes us because of them anymore. There's no condemnation. God doesn't hold a grudge. When stuff goes bad because we screw up, that's probably just because, I mean, that's the natural consequence. But it's not that God is making that happen so bad. Because there's no condemnation. As dirty and filthy as we are. Why? Because Jesus' death is greater than. So here's the thing. Though you and me, though we sin greatly again and again and again, am I right? And though the devil accuses us 24-7, 24-7, 24-7, God will not listen to those accusations against us even when they're true. Because God already knows everything the devil's going to accuse us of. And God chooses on the front end to give us mercy, withhold from us what those deserve, and grace, give us blessing even though we don't deserve it. Even though the accusations are true that 's how great Christ is. Now remember, if you've been a receiver of grace, God be a dispenser of it, even if the accusations you have against that idiot are true right even if even if my response, because I've received so much mercy and grace. gum i got to give it. And that's what makes the gospel so compelling. And that's why I love what God's doing at Flipside Church. There's our heartbeat. It's a very messy church, led by very messy people, full of messy people who have received and understood, now give mercy and grace. So what do I do? What do I become? In the light of all this. In light of what God has, who God is, who Christ is, and what God has done through Christ. It's real simple, according to Colossians 1. Now I grow in my love for him. I don't have to perform for him. He's already performed for me on the cross. I don't have to perform at all. The performance is done. Now I just have to grow in my love. And when I understand this as God, it makes me love Him even more. And I need to make some adjustments in order to do all He's asked me to do. There's some stuff I, need, I like. I need to make some adjustments because He needs to move from being prominent to preeminent, because He's greater in all things. And then I get to live free from guilt. How good would that be? To live as if you're free from guilt. Isn't this exactly the life we want for ourselves? Isn't this exactly it? To be full of this love for this God that is so beautifully profound? To be able to be empowered to do everything he's asked of me? That's just amazing. To actually live free from guilt? And if so, we got one response. Make Christ preeminent. Make him above all else. So I leave us with this question. Is Christ prominent? Or is he preeminent? Does it make sense? Man, there is a world of mercy and grace waiting for us. And let me tell you one thing that people in your huddle need to see. Those 8 to 15 people that you have relationship The one thing they need to see. Is the beauty of this message of grace. Because I guarantee you the people in your heart are covered in their own filth just like we are. And they're trying hard to be good and they never will. But they need to see, hear, and experience is this mercy and grace. You understand that? Yeah? Here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna pray together. And then I got one more little thing. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you that you love us and you love us with the love that has been proven before we ever drew a breath. Jesus, thank you for you and you crucified. My prayer for us in this moment, Father, that you would, that we would move you in our lives from being prominent to preeminent. That we'd rest in the finished work of the cross and simply be receivers of your grace. In this moment, if there's any of you here that haven't yet chosen to follow Jesus by faith, or if you know that you need to make some changes and move just from prominent to preeminent, I'd encourage you in this moment, between you and Christ and in your own heart, just say, Jesus, I choose you. Forgive me my sin. Thank you that you removed my guilt. Thank you that there's no condemnation and I make you preeminent. Give me the power to do it now. Father, I pray over us. Holy Spirit, that you would make it constant on our minds. That if we've received mercy and grace, now we dispense it. And that we would choose to make you preeminent, greater than all things. And as we do that, I pray that we experience the blessedness that comes from it. And these things, Jesus, we pray your name, amen.